Our teaching text today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 41. It's a good one. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Death's David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here today. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. 
God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brother, what should we do? Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you want to have a life of love uh, that's filled with deep relationship, you're going to have to learn forgiveness. And the reason is pretty obvious to most of us. If, if you care deeply about someone, you know that at some point uh, they're, they're going to hurt you or let you down in some way. And if the relationship is going to last, the way it's going to last is that you're going to grow through forgiveness. Most of us can get on board with that pretty right away from our own experience, even if we know that our culture sometimes celebrates the opposite of that, of that reality, right? Sometimes our, our culture is, is found celebrating, you know, basically like total autonomy or this all-encompassing project self, that the main thing is you and your story and um, anyone that cuts against that, you just get out of your life. But we know that we need love in this deep, substantial way that even a really uh, involved, complicated, beautiful project self is not quite enough to sustain our existence as human beings. We, we find our culture sometimes celebrating um, you know, uh, attempts at social banishment or, or what we've come to call cancel culture that you say someone's wronged me or wronged the world or wronged their workplace and they, they're done, they're out, we're done with them forever. But we all personally know we have gotten to places where we deeply needed forgiveness in our own story. We, we find places in our culture where, you know, the stories we tell over and over again celebrate these myths of redemptive violence or or revenge fantasies, that the way you get back when someone wrongs you is you just overwhelm them with doing something you know worse back to them. That's actually a show of strength. But most of us have at some point or another seen, hopefully even experienced, the true power that comes from forgiveness and reconciliation. We can't sustain love without learning forgiveness in the world that we live in. 
Over and over again, God also is revealed to us as a God of relationship, that God's very nature is revealed to us as one who is one being in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so uh, that means in God's very being, we say this all the time, is, is love. It's not just static power. It's love. It's community. And the whole project of God in our world centers around relationships, centers around love. And God knows more than any of us that you can't sustain love with imperfect human beings in this world without forgiveness. And so God is committed to sustaining love forever. Know that about the heart of God. God is committed to sustaining love forever. And so God is a master of forgiveness. There is no one better than God at forgiveness. And just hold that in your mind and heart as we move through um, today. When the Holy Spirit is, is poured out at Pentecost, we're in this series uh, of Pentecost reflections as we celebrated Pentecost Sunday last Sunday. It's this climactic moment in this long winding story of love and redemption that we see playing out in the world and particularly highlighted in the, in the words and stories of scripture. So it's, it's love and redemption between God and the world, between Israel and humanity. And one of the key features you see over and over again is this deep need for for an application of and working towards forgiveness. And so uh, at the end of this Pentecost uh, message, it's sort of climactic moment, we, we see Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So whatever is happening on Pentecost, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit and what that means for who Jesus was and what happened on the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and now this outpouring of the, of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and this birth of the church, at the heart of it is forgiveness. So each one of these weeks of this Pentecost series, our hope is to get really, really remarkably practical about how the coming of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit impacts our lives. And so today, I want us to consider the Holy Spirit and your worst failures. And I hope that's not um, too unglamorous of a topic or, or, or dra drags you down too much right, right at the beginning. But what uh, the question we're hoping to answer is, what does the coming of the Holy Spirit have to say about those moments of our worst mistakes? My, my hope is that this will be able to come home to the heart uh, for each of us in a substantial way. So I wanna begin by asking you to consider this question for yourself in the honesty of your own heart. What are your worst mistakes? What do you consider to be your worst failures? Maybe they're tied to the things that in your life you regret the most. Do those things feel dramatic in your memory or perhaps they feel muted or downplayed in, in some way? Uh, maybe you think of them often, daily, more than that. Maybe you feel like you barely think of them at all and this question begins to you know, sort of crank up the wheels and, and you're like, I'm not sure. 
I wonder if we can say, do we carry shame from these things that we consider our worst failures or our, our most profound mistakes or repeated patterns? Or, or do you just say, you know what? Those are the things that make me who I am, right? Uh, uh, you know, Kanye West famously said, like, it's funny, these, those same wrongs help me write this song, right? And so it's just all part of the story. Uh, were your worst failures and worst mistakes, were they one-off moments or are they patterns? I think many of us can relate to our greatest struggles are things that we return to, patterns of our thought, patterns of our, of our behavior that, that, we, that we cycle back to in our life. What would it mean to not just hear that you can be forgiven or not just know that God is a forgiving God, but to experience forgiveness in a way that just rolled through your life and brought real freedom, in a way that you experienced in your mind, in your heart, but also in your body, in, 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 in you know, an experience of freedom, an experience of forgiveness. Some of you may have had things, like I said, that immediately came to your mind when I mentioned what are, what are your worst failures. Some of you, it may, it may take some more time to consider. But what if I add this question in the mix and we begin to think about it this way as well, not just personally, although that's a starting place and going to be tremendously important even as we go forward. But what if I ask you, what's the worst sin of America? What's our country's greatest failure? I imagine we would have some debate on that, but what are the things that come to mind, right? Is it slavery? Good case to be made for that. Is it, is it uh, that that's our worst mistake, worst mistake and worst failure as a nation? Is it, is it our treatment of, of Native Americans? Is it some war atrocity at some moment in our history? As, you know, over the last, you know, gosh, I don't know exactly the timeline, but our, our online rhetoric is so intense these days that you might think our worst mistake ever was electing Trump, or maybe if you're on the other side, it was electing Biden, or it's abortion, or it's, or it's uh, you know, our current policing policies. And so, you know, we probably have some debate over what our worst failure is as a nation. But what I want you to know is that the Pentecost story it doesn't just highlight personal forgiveness, as, as important, as crucial as that is. And that's probably the one we hear most about in, in, in a church setting. But the Pentecost story doesn't just highlight personal forgiveness. It also recalls one of Israel's worst failures as a nation. If they had a national failure, you know, there would, there would probably be a few events that could have been ranked in there. But one of the events that's recalled in the Pentecost story certainly one of, would have been one of their worst moments of, of national failure. But even more than that, even more than just personal and national failure, Pentecost speaks to the healing of one of humanity's worst moments, humanity's worst instincts as a people. And this is before even Abraham was called, before the family and nation of Israel had begun their story. God is a master of forgiveness. And he's showing us that his redemption in the gospel of Jesus and the outpouring of his Holy Spirit is able to heal our wounds at every level is able to forgive our, our largest and smallest wrongs, the ones we've forgotten about and the ones we return to you know, 40 times a day. It's able to change our lives in every sphere of relationship. And it is our personal and systemic hope for the world and at the heart is forgiveness. 
So I wanna show you, hopefully pretty quickly, how many stories are coming together in the Pentecost story because I wanna show you how broad, how wide, how strong, how substantial, I wanna even say how eternally substantial is the foundation of forgiveness in the Pentecost story and what it means for you and I when we come boldly before the throne of grace and ask and even expect that we would find mercy and forgiveness for our sins or for the sins of our nation or for the sins of our family or whatever we're needing mercy for that we could expect to receive it and and part of it is seeing how many threads are being pulled together in these stories so let me give you the first one the most powerful political myth of the first century had to do with a comet and this comet came to be known as Caesar's Comet. And what happened was there was this really bright comet that was basically as bright as Venus, which was one of the Roman gods. Um, and it passed across the sky and, and, and most of the known world had either seen it or heard about it. And Octavian was in this struggle for power after Julius Caesar had been assassinated. Mark Antony, Octavian, um, who becomes Caesar Augustus, were in the struggle for power. And Octavian was Mark Antony was, had all the military might in, in the beginning. And Octavian was politically brilliant, but, and he had the heart of many of the people, but he was unqualified. He was, he had, was totally unproven. And so Octavian takes this moment. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And he takes this moment of this comment to politically begin propagating this message that that was Julius ascending to heaven as a god. He's going to the realm of the gods. And so I am Octavian, who's going to become Caesar Augustus. I am the son of God. He called himself the Prince of Peace. His court poet Virgil began to spread this mythology all throughout the known world. And so he used this, this comment to say, the, the power struggle is over. There's been a divine sign that I have the right to rule. So sometimes we mention this around Christmas that there was already an Advent story in the first century. There was already someone who was called the Son of God and the Prince of Peace and who was bringing that, that peace to the known world. That was Octavian who became Caesar Augustus. But there was also another part of this mythology. The Senate didn't want Augustus to become this tyrannical leader uh, that, that had no checks or balances to his power. And so they saw what was happening and knew who to get behind. So they did back Octavian's story, uh, but they also said, no, it's true. We saw his father Julius ascending to heaven. We were there and um, he made us, these 12 senators, his witnesses. And so they said, we also have been sort of given this divine right to rule. And we as the 12 uh, sinners who saw this are his witnesses. And our responsibility is to carry this message to the ends of the earth. Is any of this starting to sound a little bit familiar to, to you? To take Roman rule, Rome and Roman rule to the ends of the earth. So just like there had been another Advent story around, around the Christmas story that we know, that the, the people knew there was another Ascension story and there was another you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth story. Do you remember when God set his people free from slavery in Egypt? Of course you do, the Exodus story. And if you don't uh, go back, it's one of this, the, the most famous narratives of what salvation looks like at worked out in practical history um, in Israel's story. And what did he do? He went through God by God, through Egypt's mythology, and he dismantled the power of each of these false gods throughout the plagues. That's what happen, is happening in each of these 10 plagues, these things that the Egyptians relied on for their gods to provide, God 
God, Yahweh, the true God was showing that actually he was the one with the power, that he was the one with the authority over the world. And when God is setting his people free in this story of releasing them from slavery in Egypt, he confronts and dismantles these false gods, this entire mythology. When God is setting his people free from sin and the gospel of Jesus in a new context in the first century, he again confronts the false gods, the dominant stories of the day. So Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke and this, the book of Acts, begins his first book with an Advent story, and he's referencing it in a way that everyone would have known what he was talking about. Who was the Son of God? Who was the Prince of Peace? It certainly wasn't Jesus then. It was Caesar Augustus, and he begins the accounts of the Gospel, referencing this other dominant story in the world. Now when he begins his new book, he's confronting another part of that story, the place where the the power actually resided in the minds of most of the people was in Augustus and his story and his empowered senators to carry Rome and the Pax Romana. We are bringing this to the ends of the world. And here are these 12, uh, now 11 (laughs) untrained Jewish followers of Jesus and those who had gathered to pray, the most unlikely group ever, confronting this dominant cultural narrative, uh, dismantling these other mythologies for the sake of lifting up the true God. One of the things that comes through over and over and over again in the narrative of the scriptures and the story of our lives is that uh, worship matters. Worship matters tremendously. Whatever has your heart, whatever has your imagination, whatever has your deepest devotion, whatever that thing is that can ask you something and you won't refuse, that's what you worship. That's what has your admiration. That's what has your imagination. And here's the thing. Everyone has something that's that in their life, something that they think of as most valuable, most important, most celebrated, most worthy of devotion. And that is what you worship. And so God comes and he begins confronting and dismantling these alternative stories. That's the first. Here's the second. In Genesis 11, worship again is an issue. People are worshiping themselves, worshiping their own potential. Again, this is before Abraham has been called. And we have uh, another example and a string of examples in this first 11 chapters of Genesis where people are seeking to be their own gods. That was a problem in the very beginning at the fall. People are seeking to meet the deepest needs of their life out of their own resources without taking God into account at all. So they've ignored God. They've decided that as a community, they can ascend to the highest heights out of their own collective effort. They're seeking, as the text says, to make a name for themselves. And so they build this tower and this results in this very bizarre story of the Tower of Babel. We actually don't even have time to get into uh, much of it except to remember the way the story ends is this act of judgment that results in the confusion of the people's languages. Why that's important is because what happens at Pentecost when there's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit There is a reversal of this Babel story. Or instead of a judgment that separates people by language, there is a grace, a mercy, an outpouring of love, and people hear it in their own language no matter where they came from. It's one of the first miracles of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is to bring the outsider and make them an insider by letting them hear in their own language. It is a reversal of the Babel story. So... God is dismantling this wider cultural narrative that, that, that showed people where the power in the world was. And he's saying, actually, you might have missed where the, where, where the power is found. It's actually found in reconciliation and love and, and, and mercy in a way you wouldn't have expected. And here, again, he's undoing this key moment in humanity's story, the reversal of the Babel story. Let me give you a third. 
Pentecost uh, would have been called by, by, by the, the Jewish followers who were there to celebrate it. The Festival of Weeks, Shavuot is the, is the name, a celebration of the harvest. And so every year for the spring harvest, there would have been an early barley harvest. And then later, um, you know, about seven weeks later, the later spring harvest of, of wheat. And so the barley harvest took place on the first Sunday, the first fruits of the harvest came in on the first Sunday after Passover. And then about you know, several weeks later, um, the, the later spring harvest of, of the richer, finer, you know, wealthier wheat harvest came in. And this was based, and the, the, the sacrifice or the offering you brought at Pentecost was based on how much God had blessed you in that year's harvest. So if you're keeping score, and we should be, Jesus was killed on Passover, Passover lamb, he was risen from the dead on first fruits and first fruits of the poor. <laughs> and, and his spirit was poured out on the nations as a blessing in the harvest celebration at Pentecost. So we're tracking with that part of the story, uh, ho- hopefully a little bit. But also Pentecost was a cele- had to come a celebration of when God gave Torah to Israel. And the, and the reason was the giving of the law on Shavuot or Pentecost was on Passover. They had been released from Egypt. They had gone out from Egypt that night as the angel of the Lord came through and they were spared by the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. And they're spared at Passover. It becomes a festival of, of their salvation that they, they celebrate over and over. Ten days later, they travel through the wilderness. They come to Mount Sinai. Then Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai for 40 days. So the 40 and the 10 come together to be 50. Pentecost is a celebration of the celebration of this 50th day when uh, God had given his law, his word to his people to reform them into his people, to, to go from a culture of 400 years in slavery to being the people of God who could represent Yahweh, his heart, his character, his mercy, his justice, his truth in the world. And so he gives them Torah. But we also remember what happened on that 50th day is Moses came down and what does he find Israel doing? He finds Israel worshiping this idol that they had had Aaron make, this golden calf. They had been drawn back into another story, to the same idolatry that they had been freed from. We see their hearts bending back towards it over and over again. Remember the soup we used to eat in Egypt? Every time there was a need for provision, they would leap back to this old slavery that they had gotten so used to. And we actually see all of these details in the story of Mount Sinai replayed in the story of Pentecost. If, 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 and, and don't worry if you miss these, right? We have, we, we sometimes need some guides to draw our attention to these realities, but it's really quite beautiful. In both stories, you have the people of God coming to the mountain of the Lord. In the first story, it's Mount Sinai. In the second story, it's Mount Zion. We have the, the, actually the translation of the Hebrew word for thunder, and there was thunder at Mount Sinai is glossa. It's the same word that's translated tongues in the Acts story. So we have thunder or tongues. We have them coming to the mountain of the Lord. We see God establishing a dwelling place, a a, a temple, if you will. In the first story, he gives them instructions on how to build the tabernacle. In the second story, the fire of God's presence comes to dwell and settle on the people. And speaking of fire, fires in both stories as well. In the first story, the fire comes down to consume the sacrifice, to help us know that we've been forgiven, that we've been healed. In this story, the fire comes and settles on God's people are a reminder that we are meant to be a dwelling place of God. 
Moses comes down the mountain in this tragic moment. He finds the people worshiping the golden calf. And there's this horrific moment of judgment that takes place and 3,000 people die by the sword on that day as a result of that idolatry. At Pentecost, 3,000 people are pierced. The language in the NIV is they're cut to the heart, but not to the point of death, but to find salvation. They're cut to the heart. They're added to their number, those who are being saved. Marty Solomon, who's been a tremendous help to me uh, in making some of these connections, says the story of Pentecost is a redemption of the golden calf story. Okay, last one. Who's speaking at Pentecost? Who gives the sermon at Pentecost? Who stands up and tries to help people make sense of what's going on? The text tells us that it's Peter. We hear his sermon, what's he doing? He's pulling together all these threads, right? He had been living with his rabbi, Yeshua, for three years, and now he's ready to pull these threads together. So he says, remember, Israel, what you heard about the Spirit? For some of you, this would have just been a blip where the Spirit came down on Samuel or on Samson or on, on Ruth or you know people from time to time. But remember what Joel said about the Spirit? That one day there was gonna be an outpouring of the Spirit on all people. People, not just a select few and not just at certain times and places, but on your sons and on your daughters, scandalous, on young men and old men, but not just the, the, those who deserved it, on servants. The whole natural world was going to be affected. They were going to prophesy. What does that mean? All these regular people are going to start to speak the words and life and reality of God out of their mouths and out of how they lived. There's going to be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Remember what God said through the prophet Joel. There's going to be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But also, remember what you've heard about your favorite king, King David, the golden years of Israel when it had its best king on the throne, even though we know its greatest king still had some significant failures. He says, Peter says, your greatest king was looking beyond himself. He knew something else was coming. He says, David's buried. We know where his throne is, and yet he's talking about someone who God says is going to be on the throne forever and ever. Jesus was going to come as this king. So Peter's pulling together these threads, and it's inspiring, and it's, it's beautiful, but who's Peter? Obviously this impetuous disciple of Jesus, but what's the most famous story we know of Peter at the end of the gospel? It's a man who, after his big claims around a small fire, first asked by a teenage girl, don't you know this man? And what does he do? He denies Jesus for the first time, then the second time, then the third time in a row. He'd fallen out of being a disciple, gone back to fishing, been terrified, been hiding away. This same Peter is now standing up and helping people pull together the threads of history, pull together the threads of their story, pull together the possibility that tremendous outpouring of forgiveness and mercy was happening right now in their midst. And when Jesus wanted to restore Peter, what did he do? 
He basically recreated the exact scene where he had fallen. He recreates a charcoal fire, and right around that charcoal fire, he asks him three times to affirm, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He keeps asking, what's he doing? It's it's not just a a role-playing exercise. He's recreating the moment of his failure so that he can be completely and fully restored. And he's doing the exact same things, personal, national, worldwide failure. He's recreating in this Pentecost story to say, triumphantly from the heart of God, forgiveness is here. Reconciliation is open to you. No matter what your worst failures are, your babble moments, your golden calf stories, your denial, I am here to offer you mercy. Your worst failure, your brokenness as a society, our damaged world, everything that you can flip out about, about how wrong things are in the world, and you're absolutely right. And what's going to bring healing? We love to cancel. God loves to restore. He loves to heal. He loves to adopt. He loves to anoint with mercy. He loves to wash us with the with the water of the Holy Spirit. He loves to fill us with his very life. He says, you're my enemies. And guess what I did for you? I died for you. You couldn't have possibly earned it even in the slightest. So you can't possibly lose it even in the slightest because I brought you in by the power of my redemption. I have torn the veil. I've, I've, I've said it is finished. The, and And now my spirit is coming to settle on you and you are the tabernacle. You are the temple. You are the place where my life is going to dwell. And you know what I want you to do? I want you to be an agent of forgiveness. I want you to go out into the world and show an alternative way. All these historical threads and these little details here and there, these aren't just interesting stories to say, oh, wow, look, the Bible's pretty neat. It's to to show how substantial the foundation is, how far God is willing to go to rescue us, to say there is now for there no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. What's he talking about? King and Messiah. King of the world and Messiah of Israel. He's particular to this story and relevant to the whole world. When the people heard this, they were pierced. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other brothers, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized. Reorient your entire life around this. Be washed in the water that makes you clean forever. How? In the name of Jesus Christ, whose death has won this for us forever, for the forgiveness of your sins. And it doesn't stop there. And you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. I said I wanted to get really practical and... There's a bunch of ways we could describe the mechanics of forgiveness, but what I'm hoping is that you'll have an experience of it by the Spirit of God ministering that grace to you today. In the work of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, what we receive is forgiveness for our worst failures. And that forgiveness involves release that the burden of carrying those failures are not ours anymore, but it also involves power to change, 
to not just repeat those same patterns again. It's not just like you're forgiven, but you're just as likely to circle back to the exact same mistake again. No, there's power. The power of that thing over you is broken, and that power of that thing to define your choices going forward is also broken. Forgiveness involves a, 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 the, the, the release and the power to change. I love how Miroslav Volf, a Yale theologian who, who in his own national story has, has, has seen horrific atrocities. I won't go into all the um, uh, you know, history here, but it, when he writes about forgiveness, you know it's also with the weight of experience behind it. And he said, God doesn't just forgive sin. He transforms sinners into Christ-like figures and clothes them with Christ's righteousness. And even these benefits are the effects of something much more basic, the presence and activity of Christ in human beings. Such intimate communion with God has been God's goal with humanity from the beginning. We are made to, for God to live in us and for us to live in God. Forgiveness is one step toward the restoration of that communion, midway between our being sinners and our being new creatures. Those four stories that we told of, that are coming together at Pentecost, it shows that the foundation of our forgiveness is eternally substantial. It has been accomplished by God. It has been accomplished in the person of Jesus. When Jesus is on the cross, he literally says, it is accomplished, it is finished, it is done. But the experience of that forgiveness is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And that church is your invitation, it's your inheritance, and it's also your lifestyle. We're invited this morning, today, to receive forgiveness for our biggest and smallest failures, for our worst patterns and our worst one-off moments. That is our invitation, but it's also our inheritance. It is secure for us. We are sealed with this Holy Spirit that the work of Christ is applied to us in a way that is irrevocable. And that means forgiveness can become our lifestyle. And we offer this counterexample of light to our world where we're not saying we don't make, you know, we ignore the atrocities or the brokenness or the injustice. It's not that at all. We know of all people the tremendous significant cost of sin and brokenness and failure in the world. We look at it played out in the body of Jesus on the person of Christ at the cross, but we also know that that mercy transforms, that forgiveness brings life, that, that, that it's possible, that the, because of the shedding of Christ's blood, forgiveness is possible possible. And it means that we don't just work with us and the person who's wronged us or our group and the group that's wronged us. There's another force involved and we can look to Jesus and, and have the, the power to, to release and the power to change from another, from the Holy Spirit because of the work of Christ. So my question as we close is, where do you need forgiveness today? And where do you need to, to give forgiveness today? Where do you need to receive forgiveness today? Where do you need to give forgiveness today? And if you think I've overstated the practicality of this, because we always come to a question like that, don't we? I want to say the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a declaration that forgiveness is possible. Because we're not just talking about something that you're going to read about. We're talking about something that can flood your heart right now. 
something that can change your scenario right this moment, something that can change this this like 20-year pattern in your family, something that can change this five-year pattern in your mind, something that can change this like, you know, guilt that makes you sweat at night, something that like can change the reality that you feel helpless to overcome this temptation that overwhelms you on a regular basis, this addiction, this pattern, this what, that where is the places that you practically really need forgiveness today in faith and the message of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost, ask for and expect to receive that forgiveness and then bend that grace that you've received to another. And let's be agents of mercy, agents of forgiveness, agents of renewal, a Pentecost people in Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you minister your forgiveness to your people? Would you help your people minister your forgiveness to others? And would you keep filling us with your life? In Jesus' name, amen.